take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter number one. You can stay standing, Hebrews chapter number one. And uh, thank you for being in chapel this morning. I trust you had a great start to the school year already. And I know that Dr. Uh, Roulette has already preached this week. And then, of course, uh, Pastor Chapel preaching uh, uh, in the middle of the week. And then uh, taking in yesterday. I got to watch some of that sermon online yesterday until Christ be formed in you. And what a great goal. What, what, a, what a wonderful goal for an institution like West Coast to have have for you. They, they want Christ formed in you, imprinted, stamped in you. I mean, that, this, is what, this is what we want from our leaders. We want our leaders not for us to be like them. We want for our leaders to want us to be like Christ. And uh, we're in a good place when that's what our leaders want and what that's what our leaders have. Before I get into the text, let me just say a word of thank you to uh, Dr. Getch and Dr. R and the uh, faculty and staff of West Coast. Uh, when they first called about asking me to be a part of cha the chapel service, I, was, I thought maybe they had the wrong number. And uh, they said, we want you to come up and be in chapel. And I'm taking these classes online, and so I thought, well, maybe I wrote something in one of my letters that now they're questioning, and they're going to come, and when we come to chapel, and they want to correct my bad theology or something like that. Uh, but they didn't. They wanted me to preach. So here we go. Hebrews chapter number 1, and verse number 1 down to verse number 4. A couple of interesting things about the book of Hebrews. You'll find the word better mentioned in this book 13 times. The author of Hebrews writes to help us understand how much better it is to have Christ, to know Christ, and to have seen Christ. And there are some things in life that are just better, and Christ is one of those. Living your life for Christ is just better than living your life for the world. I'm so thankful that the writer of Hebrews does that. Uh, another interesting thing about the book of Hebrews is there's no authorship mentioned. There's a, a lot of people who like to pontificate about who the author of Hebrews is. I'll just leave it at, if God wanted us to know, he would have told us. And yet he didn't. So obviously this is for his own uh, glory and his own purposes. Hebrews chapter number one then, verse number one. And God, aren't you glad it starts that way? Set it up, not arguing for it. This is just true. God, God who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than angels, as he hath the inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word in our hearts and lives. Stamp it on our hearts. 
write it on our minds, set it before our eyes, and may we wholly go after your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews is really a, a letter of warning. It's a warning to those who are in danger of slipping away. They're in danger of slipping away from their original commitment to Christ. They're in danger of, of drifting into spiritual immaturity. Some are even in danger of turning away from the very grace of God, turning away from the doctrines of God, the doctrines of Christ of which they have heard. Chapter 2 teaches us this. Verse number 1 of chapter 2, Therefore we ought to give a more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Unless at any time we should let them slip. The writer tells us the implications of turning away from hearing God's word. The, the implications of refusing to listen to the word warnings given to us in God's word have a serious implication, not only on our lives, but on our doctrines, on the things we teach, and on those who come after us. Look at chapter 3, verse number 15. That while it is said today, if ye will hear this word, now harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. For some, when they heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. And then he asked several questions at the end of that chapter. By with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Another question in verse number 18. To whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? He helps us understand that when we refuse to listen to God's word, when we turn away even from hearing God's word, when we harden our hearts toward the very teaching of the word of God, that we become like these who are unable in the, in the Exodus, they're unable to enter into rest. He, he goes even farther in chapter number five and in chapter number six. We won't take the time this morning, but he goes even farther to say that it's not just your spiritual immaturity that is at risk, and it's not just the hardening of your heart and thus hardening yourself to the speaking of God through His Word. It's not just that, but it even leads to apostasy. In that turning away from God's Word, failing to hear the Word of God leads us to a position in our teaching and in our preaching where we deny the very God that we say we represent. The people in Hebrews aren't the first to do this. But what is also true is that the people in Hebrews are not the last to do it either. 
The men and women that the writer of Hebrews is exhorting, they are not the first ones to hear the word of God and turn away. But the men and women in Hebrews are not also the last ones to hear the warnings of God's word and then turn away, reject, plug their ears and walk away from those very warnings. So what you have happening in Hebrews is you have a failure to hear the warnings from God's word. That somewhere along the line, these men and women had replaced an internal relationship with Jesus for outward religious personification. And because they replaced an internal relationship with Jesus for outward religiousness, they began to drift away. And that drift happened slowly, but that drift happened nonetheless. The people in Hebrews, just like us, faced temptation from the world around them. The people in Hebrews, just like us, were uh, wrestling with the difficult questions about what do I really believe and do I really believe this? Is this what God has for me? The people in Hebrews had been beat down and buffeted by the culture that is around them. And slowly they became discouraged. They became disillusioned and they began to drift away. The writer of Hebrews writes this book as a way to say, I do not want you to end up like this. I don't want you to end up here. So here is how you do not end up drifting away. Here, is, here are the things you need to build into your life that will keep you in spiritual maturity, not in in-spiritual maturity. Here are the things that you need in your life that will cause you to walk after God and holiness and righteousness and, and sound doctrine. And here are the things you should stay away from because they'll pull you away from that. They'll, they'll drag you from that. You know, try for a moment to just unplug the Pharisee mode and let's just be honest. Because even though we sit here at West Coast Baptist College, and even though we've signed statements of faith, those affirmations do not make a fiction out of God's warnings. This warning is for you. This warning is for me. Have you not ever faced the fiery darts of unbelief? Have you not ever been discouraged by people around you? Have you not ever wondered, is this really what I believe? Have you not ever questioned about why teachers and spiritual leaders go astray, walk away from the truth, walk away from the church, run off from their families, walk away even from the gospel, walk away even prepared to deny Christ? What, what is that? Why does that happen? Here's why. Because they failed at some point to listen to the warnings. So he says in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, we ought to give a more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. We ought to give a more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. So here's what he's saying. Pay attention 
to what you've heard. Pay attention to what you've heard. Listen to the things you've heard. And then the next natural question from that is, well, what things have we heard? Well, he answers, that's where he begins in our text. Here's what you heard, that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, he hath in these times spoken unto us by his Son. So it is the word of God that has been given to the people of God in order that the people of God would pay close attention to God's word, that they would obey his commands, that they would accept his promises, that they would heed his warnings so that they might not drift. So what have we heard? Well, what he begins is he begins in the best place. He begins with what we have heard of Christ. What we have heard of Christ. This is the, the title for the West Coast Baptist College Chapel. The Incomparable Christ. Now, if I were preaching this in Long Beach, I wouldn't use a title like The Incomparable Christ. I would use the title like how I received it when I was a little boy going to Sunday school at Second Baptist Church in Festus, Missouri, when they walk us downstairs and they sat all the boys and girls down and they said it this way, there's nobody like Jesus. So my distinguished title for you, the incomparable Christ. But my regular layman's title, there's nobody like Jesus. So remember what you heard about Jesus. And what the author is saying is, see Jesus. Go after Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus because he's the author and finisher of our faith. Go strong after Christ, college students. Oh, that we might have a generation who puts their eyes on Jesus and goes after him. Oh, that God might raise up young adults who put their eyes on Christ and go strong after him, regardless of the discouragement and regardless of the narratives and regardless of the culture. Our eyes are on Christ, and it is him we pursue, and it is him that we preach, and it is him that we love, and it is him that we go after. Put your eyes on Jesus Christ and go strong after him, no matter what what else? It tells us a couple of reasons why we should. It's two, in fact. First, notice the sufficiency of Christ proclaimed. This is verse number one, that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, in times past, un, uh, in times past unto the fathers, by the prophets hath in these last days... So God spoke. You can sense the contrast, the, the distinction between the revelation given in the Old Testament to the prophets and the revelation seen in Jesus Christ. It's as though the author is saying the prophets spoke God's word, but Jesus is God's word. 
The prophets spoke the word of God, but Jesus is the word of God. And you sense that comparison when he says, in times past, but now in these last days. He's, he's contrasting it. This is the way that God spoke then, but this is how God is speaking to us now. He, this is by the prophets he spoke unto us, but now he speaks directly to us through Jesus Christ. In many ways, diverse ways, sundry times, all but now he speaks through one singular way. And that one singular way is his son. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. And don't let the good news of verse 1 pass you up too quickly because here's the good news of verse 1. And that is that we have a God who speaks. A God who at sundry times in diverse manners, do you see it? Spake. That we have a God who is actively speaking. We have a God who is wooing. We have a God who is talking. We have a God who is interacting with us. And he's saying to you, and he's saying to me, hey, hey, listen, come this way. Hey, 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 listen, go this direction. Hey, listen, pursue after this goal. Hey, have this attitude. Watch these things. Stay away from those things. Hey, let's go here. Let's not go there. Hey, let's respond like this. Let's not respond like that. It is God who is speaking. You have never had a moment in your life when God has spoken and nothing happened. And when God speaks, things move. And when God speaks, things happen in our lives. The text tells us that God is a speaking God, and not just that he's a speaking God, but he's a speaking God, and he speaks human language, and he speaks this language in various ways and in various places. The emphasis of the text then is God speaks. It may have been Moses' mouth, but it was God's word. It may have been David's harp, but those were God's lyrics. Isaiah did the prophesying, but God did the speaking. That is to say that God's word did not originate in the minds of men, but rather in the will of God. Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God spoke in times past unto the fathers, notice, by the prophets. You could pick this up on the very verbiage of the prophets. Zechariah uh, said, the word of the Lord came unto me. Isaiah, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and heard his voice. There was no pulpit search committee in Nineveh that invited Jonah to the outstretched reaches of the Assyrian kingdom for him to preach revival. No, Jonah said, it is the word of the Lord that has come unto me. It is God who did the speaking. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture comes from God. And God spoke at sundry times, notice the text says. And God spoke not only to the prophets, but God spoke in many ways. What, what are we prepared to say of, of Jacob's theophany? 
What, what about Ezekiel's vision? What about Joseph's dream? What about Moses' burning bush? What about Elijah's encounter with that still small voice? What about Balaam's donkey? All of these are ways in which God's speaking to us can be seen and can be understood through the writings of the Old Testament. And keep moving through the verse, though, but in diverse manners. The passage speaks of the fragmentary nature of the revelation of God, that God discloses himself in pieces and in parts of the Old Testament. This is why Jesus, after the resurrection, walks along the Emmaus Road with the two disciples, and he reveals unto him all things concerning himself from the Old Testament. What he's saying to the disciples on the Emmaus Road is all of that was about me. Everything you read there was about what happened here. Everything you understood from the prophets was all pointing to what I would do right here and right now. To Noah, it was re revealed the kind of world that Christ would come into. To Abraham, it was the nation of the Messiah. To Jacob, it was the tribe of the Messiah. To David and to Isaiah, it was the family of the Messiah. To, to Micah, it was the town. To Daniel, it was, the, it, was the, uh, it was the time. To Jonah, it was the very nature of his, rev of his resurrection. These are all bits and pieces, but when you put all of them together, Together, you have a beautiful mosaic of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Every one of those pieces, every one of those bits, every one of those little portions, they all come together in one place. And that one place is Christ. In Jesus Christ, everything is complete. In Jesus Christ, everything is full. And Jesus stands not in contradiction to the Old Testament. Jesus stands in continuity with the Old Testament. He says, everything revealed there was about what I am doing here. We see the sufficiency of Christ proclaimed, but we see second and last, we see the su superiority of Christ presented. The superiority of Christ presented. Look at verse 2. He hath in these last days. It's a little phrase. It breaks time in half. What he's saying is there was a way that I communicated before Christ. And I did that through the prophets for your good to point to Christ. But now in these last days... There is a way that I am communicating, and the way I communicate now in these last days is through the person of Jesus Christ. That even here, at the writing of Hebrews, they thought it was the last days. Those are some long days. And yet even there, they're saying here in these last days, he's drawing a line. Here's what he's telling us, that there is no new way in which God is speaking to us. God spoke to us through the prophets, and those prophets pointed to Christ, and now Christ has come, and God's speaking is full. He has said everything he wants to say through Christ. There's no third category. There's no third department. 
And God spoke to them this way. God spoke in the New Testament of Christ. And God speaks to me through, no, 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 God speaks to us the same way he spoke here. It was before Christ. Here's how he spoke. Christ came and now God's speaking is done. Everything you want to know about God is revealed to you in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer then wants us to understand how superior Christ is to all. That's why you get the phrase, he is better. He is a better prophet. He is a better prophet because God spoke through him to us the very final word of God. He's a better king. Because he alone is worthy of all honor, of all glory, and because he alone inherits all things. And he is a better priest because he accomplishes the perfect work of cleansing us from our sin so that he gets up when he's done. He ascends to his father and then he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's a better prophet, he's a better king, and he's a better priest. Notice how he tells us this. He tells us this, verse 2. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now he's going to tell you everything about his Son. Whom he hath appointed, notice, heir of all things. Christ, like the eldest brother, gets the lion's share of all that belongs to the Father. Jesus, in fact, said, all that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why Colossians 1 writes and says, all things were created by him and all things were created for him. And there's nothing made that was not made by him and there's nothing made that was not made for him. This helps us understand that everything that exists, exists for the glory of God Almighty. Everything that exists, exists for the glory of God Almighty. The United States, North Korea, Afghanistan, Russia, China, all of it exists for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every president, every king, every ruler, every dictator, all of it exists for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of it exists for his glory because all of it is under his feet. This is why he is the heir of all things. All of the nations belong to him. So this is why we take his story out into the nations and boldly proclaim Christ. Why? Because they all belong to him anyway. He's the heir of all things because he alone is worthy. There is no one else found worthy to redeem mankind. Jesus Christ paid the high price for our sin. And Moses wasn't worthy. He slew an Egyptian. He struck the rock. He lost a generation in the wilderness. Joshua wasn't worthy. He never fully conquered the land as he was commanded and told to do. David wasn't worthy. He, his throne didn't get stronger. His, his throne got weaker. Jeremiah wasn't worthy. He regretted the day that he was born. Isaiah wasn't worthy. He was a man of unclean lips. And we could keep going all the way through the Old Testament how there was not a man found worthy until Matthew chapter 1 when God wrapped himself in human 
human flesh and he put on the likeness of sinful man and he became a man and Jesus in his sinfulness and in his submission to the Father proved himself to be worthy which is why every language and every tongue and every tribe and every person of every people in every age will bow down before him one day and declare all honor to Jesus Christ and glory to God Almighty. Oh, he's the heir of all things, including you. He's not just the heir of all things, he's the maker of all things. By whom also he made the worlds. And that is to say all of creation from the bubbling brooks to the hurricanes, to the storms, to the waves, to the mountains, to the valleys, from the springs. All of creation belongs to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scholars call ex nihilo power of God. God has spoken and made the world out of nothing. The way to appreciate that is to realize you've never made anything out of nothing. My wife says sometimes we have people over for dinner. She'll say, here, try some of this chicken that I made. She didn't make that chicken. <laughs> she, she might have put some spices on it. She might have fried it. She might have battered it. She might have seasoned it. But she didn't make that chicken. What did God have to work with when he created the world? What tools did he have at his disposal? No, he had nothing. God stepped out on nothing. He looked at nothing. He spoke to nothing. But when he got done, there was something. He made the world. This is why Abraham Kuyper says, there's not one square inch on planet Earth where Jesus does not say, mine. He rules every inch of every planet, of every space, in every universe, from the top of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet up to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, 36,000 feet down. He owns all the weather, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the monsoons, the earthquakes, the floods, the snow, the rain, the sleet. He rules and reigns over all politics and elections and debates. He rules and reigns over all media and news and entertainment and sports. He rules and reigns over all universities and education and scholarships and science and research. He rules and reigns over all business and finance and industry and manufacturing. It was all made by him and it was all made for him. That is to say, when God decides to do something, he doesn't need anything to begin. God doesn't need anything to accomplish his work if he purposes it to be done. You see how this is good news for you and me? Because we ain't nothing. And no good thing dwells in me. In my flesh, Paul says, there dwelleth no good thing. And yet when God purposes a work to be done, God always accomplishes the work he set out to do. we got to go quick because you see next the brightness of his glory. 
The glory of God is the visible expression of God's presence. Look what it says. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory. The text does not suggest, as some theologians would have us to believe, that Jesus just simply reflects God's glory. Like the moon reflects the sun. No, that the, don't belittle Jesus like that. The text doesn't say he reflects God's glory. The text says he is the radiance of God's glory. He's equal with the Father. He's equal with the Father in all of his attributes. He's equal with the Father in all of his character. He's equal with the Father in his eternality that Christ has never had a beginning but simply always was. He's equal with the Father in all of his virtues and in all of his character and in all of his commitments that Jesus Christ, the, the writer will tell us later, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the express image. He doesn't just represent God. You and I do that. We do a pretty bad job at times. He doesn't just represent God. He revealed God to us. A lot of people have misrepresented God. I'm glad God didn't leave it up to us to figure out what he was like. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus heals a man with leprosy simply by touching him. And that's God revealing himself to the world by saying, I am loving just like that. Luke chapter number 7, there's a woman with an alabaster box. She breaks the contents of that box. She pours them over Jesus. And he says, I'm loving just like that. Jesus welcomes the women of ill repute and tax collectors and sinners. He welcomes them to his company. And he's weaving a picture for you and for me that says, I am welcoming like that. And on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago, he hung between two thieves and he stretched out wide and he died an undeserving death for my sin and for yours. And he paints a picture that says, I am forgiving just like that. The Bible says last, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. It's a present active participle, the word upholding. It means he didn't just speak it into existence, he didn't cause it to be, but he sustains it. God doesn't just hold the world. God moves the world as the, as the world moves along. You realize how impressive that is once you have kids. Because I can't get my kids to pick up their Legos. And when God spins this world out into created order, God speaks it into existence. God upholds it by his very hand. And then God causes everything in the world to move according to his own purposes. And Christ is keeping it all together. That's what that means. The seasons, the times, the kings... It's all being kept together by the will of God. The universes, the heavens, the space, the planets. It's all being kept together by the will of God. And you look at the world around us. You see social upheaval. You see pain. You see difficulty that people walk through. When you pastor, you'll see people in your church who lost everything. Parents have lost their children. People who have invested time have lost all their investment in a company, have no resources to show for it. 
Husbands lose their wives, wives lose their husbands, parents lose their children, children lose their parents. You know, watch people resort to all kinds of things. Running to alcohol, only to know that their problems creep back up. People trying to drown out their sorrow in all kinds of narcotics. You can't help but wonder as you watch people go through things like this, knowing that you've gone through the same things. Knowing that you aren't as smart as some people living under the bridges in downtown L.A. But here you are sitting at West Coast Baptist College. And the question becomes, how are you keeping it all together? How are you upholding this? And I can tell you, you aren't keeping it all together. Jesus is keeping it all together for you. That if Jesus wasn't upholding you, you would have already lost your mind. If Jesus wasn't upholding you, the bottom would have already fallen out. If Jesus wasn't upholding you, you'd be in the same place they are. Oh, but by the grace of God, Paul says, and there go I. There go I. I wonder this morning if we realize how dependent we are on the Lord Jesus Christ. My time is up, but the best part of the text is the last part of the text. And here's what it says. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Your scholars here, they already know this better than I do, but there was no chair in the old temple. There was no seat for the priest because the work of the priest was never done. So how in the world does Jesus get to sit down once he's made this sacrifice? And here's how. Because when he made his sacrifice on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. My work is done. I've provided salvation, redemption, and atonement for all mankind everywhere. For all those who would believe on me, my work is complete. And he pulled up a chair next to God in heaven and he sat down because his work was done. Jesus came to deal with our biggest problem, and he dealt with it. He finished it. He resolved it. The guilt is gone. The remorse is gone. The consequence of sin over our lives and destinies is gone. Our sin, which causes every other problem that we face, is resolved on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my sin was punished because of the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My guilt was crushed because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My curse, which sin brought on me, is no more because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I will live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, there ain't nobody like Jesus. 
He descended in humility. He talked with authority. He lived with simplicity. He died triumphantly. He raised gloriously. And now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, there's nobody like Jesus. And I wonder if the life that I'm living right now, am I living it for him? Are the affections I feel right now, are they for him? The entertainments that I enjoy right now, are they for him? Are my passions his passions? Is my speech his speech? Are the pursuits of my life his pursuits? Is the attitude of my heart the attitude that he would have? See, when you see the magnitude of Christ, when you see the incomparable nature of Christ, a temptation looks like that suicidal, insane little monster that it is. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Account yourself indeed dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ. Are you wholly going after Christ? Are you willing to follow Christ, not for fame, not for reputation, not for comfort, but are you willing to follow Christ in sacrifice and suffering and hostility? Are you willing to pick up your cross and come after me, Jesus said? Are you willing to proclaim him? Are you willing to preach him, to preach Christ and him crucified? Are you willing to preach him in the highways and the hedges, compelling all those who do not yet know him to come to know him? Do you preach Christ? Do you preach him high and holy and lifted up so that he might draw all men to himself? There's nobody like Jesus. Nobody was ever born like Jesus was born. Nobody ever lived like Jesus lived. Nobody ever spoke like Jesus spoke. Nobody ever died like Jesus died. Nobody ever got up like Jesus got up. And nobody is coming back like Jesus will one day come back. Are you ready for that? Are you living for that? Are you pushing into that? Heed the warning so that you might not drift into spiritual immaturity and thereby fall away into apostasy. Go strong after Christ. Christ.